Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Welcome everyone to the fourth SNIT of the year. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us on what is shaping up to be almost a sunny day in Kingston. Um, and we're really happy to, for you to be here for our talk with Dr. David Lima. Um, although we come to you virtually, our seminar series is hosted by Queen's University, which is located on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and more recently the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario, on whose shores we reside. Today's session will be from a different territory, um, what have been Indigenous territories, in Belarizanche, Brazil, and it's about the politics of green grabbing and resistance in that country. Dr. Debra Lima has her PhD from the University of Campinas in Brazil and has been a postdoctoral fellow at the Universidade de São Paulo and here at Queen's University. She's also worked with and been a research consultant for various Brazilian social movements where she shares information about acquisitions of farmland by foreign companies, illegal soy farms, and land conflicts in order to support the resistant efforts of peasant, indigenous, and traditional communities such as quilombolas, fisherfolk, babasu, coconut pickers. In 2017, Dr. Lima published the book Modern Grain Frontier and the Transformations of the Agrarian Space in Taukenchins and has written articles on various topics related to critical agrarian studies, land conflicts, commodities, and land markets. So welcome, Dr. Lima, and thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you, Caroline, for your presentation, and thank you very much for receiving me and let me participate of this uh, seminar as well. I hope you enjoy it and we have a pleasant conversation after my presentation. I will be sharing a few slides about what I'm going to speak today, but at the end we can uh, discuss a little bit further. Okay, can I share already? Yeah, okay. So, hold on just a second. Can you see the full presentation? Okay, just hold on. So today we are going to speak a little bit about land and nature appropriation in Brazil and how green grabbing is related to the climate change narratives and how we can face the problems uh, that the social environment movements are dealing with right now. So my presentation will be divided uh, in a few steps. Uh, first, I'll be presenting a little bit about land grab process, because I think it's like this major concept that it's really attached to green grab process as well. Uh, later on, we will discuss a little bit of the climate change narratives and green grab during the pink tide um, 
government in Brazil and also what we are dealing right now with Bolsonaro uh, government. And then uh, share a little bit what is going on in the resistance, uh, especially on uh, rural social movements here in Brazil. So to think a little bit about land grab, uh, I think the major, the key um, points uh, during the end of the 90s into the recent days, we have a little, a few publications, especially uh, with the World Bank. So in 1999 was really interesting because it was uh, a thing that was brought by the government of Lithuania actually. That was with uh, some negative issues related to getting to the United, uh, the European Union process. And the question that they were trying to deal with in this moment was, uh, because of uh, foreign people and foreign companies could not uh, buy lands in Lithuania, uh, they were dealing with these uh, agreements between European Union and at the same time a little bit dealing with the fear to see how this could affect the loss of um, uh, concerns about the control of the Lithuanian territory. And this was the first document that the, the United Nations brought this theme a little bit widely because on this uh, report, we can also see on the studies moved by this specific case, how the foreign companies was buying lands also in Latin America and Asia. And then we, they shifted a little bit how they will frame the land grab process and the foreign uh, land acquisitions uh, in the report of 2011. And it was really interesting because I think these uh, reports from 2011 and also 2012 are the major key to understand what is going on about land grab right now, because it was after 2008 crisis when we saw land giving this receiving this major importance uh, on the stock markets because of the financial crisis that we were dealing into right now actually, but was moved by the, the subprime uh, issues related to the 2008 crisis, for example. And over the time in, in this first uh, report in 2011, uh, the World Bank actually started to indicate some frames about what we can think and concept uh, land grab. And one of the, the things that was really highlighted on this report was related to large land acquisitions, for example, uh, bigger than 2,000 acres. That was kind of a measure that after this process, we still try to understand a little bit of the nuances about land acquisitions and what was framed on this report. But I think it's really important to think about that. And on the report of 2012, uh, it was interesting to see all these multiple foreign investors uh, going to the, the land grab acquisition. So we will have uh, agriculture and non-agriculture companies uh, 
going really intense on the land acquisitions, for example, oil companies, banks, and also uh, financial uh, actors as well as pension funds, uh, government funds, for example, and so on. Here in Brazil, at this moment, we will have this huge interest of uh, foreign land acquisition, especially from the government of China, banks of China, uh, MENA uh, region governors investing here in Brazil that we can also see on the book of Sasha Saskin, explosions, uh, I think in English, right? And after this, uh, this theme was really highlighted on, on on the United Nations and the World Bank, we will see this really boom happening also in the, the academic fields. And now we have this like major publications about the thing, but I think it's important also to highlight the Forum of Global and Grabbing at the Journal of Passion Study that happened in 2011 that we can see, for example, articles from uh, June Bojas that is still quoting a lot about the theme and also the dossier in Canadian Journal of Development Studies that it has a really interesting uh, way to frame land grabbing, bringing not, not only the questions related uh, about large land acquisitions, but also how labor was uh, changing with this land grab process, how we can see this governance uh, shifting about the, the land grab issues as well and so on, and how we can frame this through political economy uh, methodologies, agrarian change methodologies and so on. And well, here in Brazil, uh, how we are trying to deal and face with the changes and the challenges to study uh, land and nature appropriation with land grab and also green grab frame as we are going to see a little bit further. First of all, I think it's really hard to understand the control of the territory because after the the 2008 crisis and a lot of the changes of the financial institutions that were related to the land grab, we see also how the, the shape of the companies and the shape of the, the actors that were uh, investing in agriculture and land was uh, having a lot of multiplicity. For example, here in Brazil, we cannot, we have a lot of, uh, impositions for foreign uh, land acquisitions. But we, so how the, for example, the foreign capital was uh, doing, for example, they were creating uh, national subsidiarities with 99% of foreign capital, but the company it's national. So it's uh, able to buy infinitous amount of land in Brazil, for example. This happened a, a lot with the TIAA, uh, Harvard Fund, Rada Fund, uh, the Dutch Bank, it's also investing in this sort of national subsidiaries as well. We can see mining companies using this type of strategy, strategy as well. And the problem here in Brazil, it's not only to uh, made this, uh, this kind of cheat process on the bureaucracy, but how land itself 
and how land is organized in Brazil. The major part of the territory does not have legal papers of the land or a lot of land conflicts, as we will see. And pretty much most part of the foreign investors want a legal land. So they also are using different types of local actors to try to shift the legal land to legal land, even though we know that land has sometimes traditional territories or it's a public land. But as we are going to see a little bit further, it's kind of easy uh, on nowadays to create legal papers uh, to some lands or to traditional territories. Uh, also, I think the, the land issue, it's related also with the concept of territorial disputes, including immaterial territories. So normatives, narratives, infrastructures, for example, laws and so on, multiple scales and territorialities. For example, we will see how local people and public lands are now dealing with global problems. And it's quite interesting because sometimes you go to the communities and you ask, oh, who is the owner of this land? And they say, oh, it's an American or it's some people from the South that it's also white people that has more access to money and funds and public funds in Brazil. But Sometimes it's important to understand a little bit profound who are these people, who are these companies, and they they does not have the the ability to understand how complex sometimes is the stock market, and every every foreign people is pretty much uh, a U.S. people for for most part of the communities, for example. And also, I think it's something that it's pillar on, on the subject and what we see in Brazil is the state as an actor that it's a contradictory agent. So at the same time that we see, for example, in the Workers' Party governments, uh, advances of uh, popular and social political issues, we will see that in the, on the land and environmental questions, there was a, a kind of way to balance some advances that we have at this moment. And now <laughs> what is going on in Brazil and also how sometimes the state uh, and the land grab shapes some forms of uh, resistance as well. I did a, a work uh, with, uh, in the Latin American Council with Andrea, Andrea Sosa. It's a PhD student in Argentina. And we were exactly trying to understand this a little bit better in Amazon. And then on the questions, we can also debate this if, if you guys want to. I don't know if you guys are able to see, but this is a trying to make a little bit of the map of the actors that are related to the nature and land process in Brazil. It's kind of uh, inspired by a work that I did for Fian International about land digitalization. But, and digitalization process, it's really important to shift illegal lands to, to legal lands now in Brazil, because 
the the land uh, systems now are self-declaratory. So the farmers can go in into a computer and just say how much land they actually own and how much land, uh, land they can preserve or be a, a legal and environment land in Brazil. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but you can make a legal land turn into legal land in three days in Brazil from a process that usually will take years on the before 2012 when we shift the forestry code uh, to do that. So the, the gray lines is related to how the work bank are related to the actors. The orange lines, it's related to how the market in, on national and international scale are related in Brazil and the red lines are related to the notaries and how the the land system is organized in Brazil. So here we can see, for example, that the World Bank uh, played a major part on the change of some laws in the Brazilian state and also in the federal and uh, state spheres as well. Uh, for example, in Piauí, that it's receiving a lot of foreign investments, especially for uh, nature speculation and, and also for soy farms. Uh, they received a, a land regularization program fund from the World Bank. And it, it, it was quite interesting because at the same time that the World Bank is trying to help and force to legalize those lands, that at the first moment, it is a, an important thing. And I think it's a major thing to legalize those lands in Brazil. They were uh, making the state government to make a debt. And the only way to pay this debt was canceling some lands that are major occupied by traditional communities that does not have access to computers or how to do the, the self declaratory uh, titles, for example, and moving these lands for the land stock market to pay the loans for the World Bank. <laughs> so at the same time that we are raising the legal lands, we are also expelling traditional communities and making the governments moving supranational institutes, for example. And in, the, in this process of legalizing the, the, the land for the stock market, we will see pension funds buying those lands, commodity farmers, uh, and also land grab intermediates, because sometimes they do, I don't know, like real estate companies with national and foreign uh, funds, for example, or they, they have uh, first a Brazilian buying the land and then uh, buying those lands after that for national or international companies. Uh, sometimes you need the, those steps to move the land on the notary systems because the digital systems and the notary systems they, are, they don't talk uh, through itself in Brazil. So we have a lot of paper that it's not digitalized and a lot of things that it doesn't make sense when you look the different titles. And that's also a strategy to land grab because sometimes they have like a paper that it's actually written 10 acres and 
actually we we saw some cases that people just go by hand and add a few zeros on those papers it it looks like really crap i know that but it's things that actually happen when we go to the communities and the field works and also, uh, the digitalization system, it's important because it's how the farmers, even if it's small farmers, traditional communities or huge commodity farmers are taking public funds for agriculture. So that is also a system that we see how it's uh, in equal opportunities for traditional communities and small farmers as well. Because if you don't have the, the, the titles uh, on the anchor system, that is the digitalized system, you are not able to access public credit funds for agriculture now in Brazil. And they now are attaching um, uh, the titles that represent legal reservations and areas that you have to preserve on your uh, property also to allow the, down, the landowners to the public funds. I don't know if I, I explained myself pretty well in English, but we can we will see a little bit further about how the green grab is also connected with these uh, digital land titles as well. So just framing a little bit how the land system works in Brazil, we see how difficult it is to have information just because some things are still on paper and we don't have like quality uh, materials on that. But we are looking of some of the databases that we have internationally as land, metri land metrics, grain, trays. And also we are uh, doing this database in Brazil as well. That is called Struggle and Land Database. That is Data Luta, that it's pretty much, I don't know, related to almost 30 universities here in Brazil that works with uh, social movements and also are looking about land and nature appropriation. But the problems here, it's because the system of land grab is self-declaration. Uh, we are sometimes dealing with information that it's not quite exactly what it's happened on the reality. Uh, we don't have much of transparency on the land acquisition process here in Brazil, it's really difficult to see for how much money it's related on some transactions, how it's actually the, the quantity of acres that they are uh, making on the, on the transactions. Uh, I was interviewing some of the senators and judges on the, on the Amazon and one of them was told me how these uh, land transactions in Amazon, it's also related to uh, greenwash and land washing uh, for foreign money. For example, we have some Spanish mafia on land grab process in Amazon going right now. So it's a little bit hard to understand how the, the, the land acquisition process is actually going in Brazil. Uh, Pretty much most part of the databases is related to large scale land acquisitions. And if we see right now, uh, we have also some actors that it's not buying land, uh, large, large lands. And also because large lands is such a, 
difficult way to frame in different countries. For example, where it's a large land acquisition in Brazil, it's really different in Paraguay, it's really different in Colombia, it's really different in Mozambique, for example. Uh, and also because here in Brazil, we, we can see that the, the, the land grab uh, actors are also trying to purchase more smaller uh, uh, acquisitions. So they, they make uh, medium or low or yeah, low lands acquisitions, but in the amount is going to be the same area. So they don't purchase, for example, 10,000 acres at once, but di from different uh, buyers and different people, they buy a hundred acres and then five acres and then 50 acres. And in the end of the transaction, we will see that it's a major process, but if you look individual, we will be different uh, transactions itself. We don't have much of uh, this theme going on the media. And also it's sometimes it's difficult to relate for urban societies to, to relate it to the theme and also to try to finance. And Brazil is pretty much dealing with right now with zero uh, science financial. <laughs> we lost pretty much of 80% of all the funds that it was going to education right now. And also the sub notification of the, the land grab process that it's also going on on the, on the databases that I presented before. Uh, some, some difficulties and critics that we can uh, face on the land grab databases is the inconsistencies of the data, especially when we look globally, because it's hard to understand and frame uh, the process for different realities. For example, the lack of field studies, because sometimes it's really difficult to see this major movement and go to the areas and it's expensive sometimes to do field works. Uh, many of the transactions were not concluded. And this is really interesting because we see on, at this moment how it's also not only related to agribusiness production, but financial and speculation of the, the, the actors that are involved. Uh, pretty much what we saw on Cerrado and Amazon in Brazil was major parts being deforestated, but it was not transformed as commodity uh, farms in five or seven years after the, the land transaction, because sometimes you can just have uh, public funds in Brazil just on the purchase or just on the projection itself of the production. So you just can have public loans just estimating the power of the, the, the company has to produce, even if the, you don't have the production at the moment, that it's really related to what is going on majorly when the, with the capitalism at the moment that we face. Uh, some, some databases overestimated data and some of, the, uh, of them uh, underestimated the data depending on the methodology. For example, if you see the numbers on land metrics for land acquisitions in Brazil, it will be a little bit lower if you go to farm grab on grain, for example, because they use different methodologies. 
And we also can see on the article of science about land grab that has really comparisons about how we can face these methodologies and, and so on. And I think one of the questions that it's really important to frame with uh, when we face land grab uh, concept, it's and the shift of the land grab concept and process itself during the years, it's how it's not only about land, but including the, the notion of territory and also the nature and all the types of resources that are related on the territory itself. So at this point, I think it was when land grab started to be a, a major thing, especially when not only was necessary to control and have the legal and land acquisition in Brazil, but also how with the shift of normative, especially on the, the environmental aspect, uh, pretty much what that happened in 2012 in Brazil with the forestry code. Uh, one thing that was really important on, on the changes that happened on this code was that you have this major forgiveness of environmental fines that it started at this moment and it's going getting worse in Bolsonaro government. And also you can deforestate in one part of the Amazon, for example, I can, or, or in a different biome, for example, I can deforestate 10 acres here in Belo Horizonte where I'm based on, and I can pay these 10 acres that I'm deforestating here in another place that the land is cheaper or it's easier to buy or something like that. But the question is you cannot move, for example, spring waters from, <laughs> from the territory. So what happened, for example, in Amazon and Tejado, it's that the agribusiness is start to deforestate on the areas that were that have better lands, that was closer to the rivers, that was closer to the infrastructures and paying in another place that it was not related to uh, net conservation units, for example, or was related to uh, biodiverse corridors. So you shift the nature from place and create this artificial substitution of the natures from the system that you actually can buy on the stock market that now in Brazil, it's mediated by the environmental reserve quota. We have this national financial market, then you can go there and just buy one acre of Amazon forest, one acre of Cerrado forest and see what is cheaper and buying this place and deforestate whatever you want to. And this kind of movement, uh, this move of the, the state, how to regulate the biomes and nature, just create this nature financialization and speculation of the market here, transforming not only uh, land as an asset, but also nature as an asset. And it was really interesting to see, for example, I think it was 2016 that uh, we did a seminar here in Brazil about Marxism. They, they were related to some universities from Germany and they did a, a, 
research and how much people were uh, able to buy to go to a spring water or a waterfall in Brazil. And they answered they were able to buy until $10 to go to a, a waterfall. But uh, $10 in Brazil, it's now like 5% of the minimum salary of some people. So it's just impossible to the people that usually go to the river or the spring waters or the waterfalls for free to go right now. Because, all, because with this process, uh, the land was also privatized. And also we have now with Bolsonaro government, all the parks being privatized as well on the national, on the, the stock market as well. So we are dealing with a, a lot of issues how nature is, has been speculated and uh, being an asset here in Brazil. And we also have like major programs related to the green grab process that most of them are, was already on the 2000s here in Brazil. For example, the reduction uh, emissions by reducing deforestation, that it's an old program that is already happening in Amazon. They are like in the third phase right now, I think. And the first phase, it was also interesting to see how small farmers that have the land title were able to access the program and the collective territories and collective lands were not able to access those programs as well. And this is a sort of uh, immaterial force to make traditional communities shift the type of land to access credit funds and environmental funds as well in Brazil. And also we have different programs and actions related to green, clean energy, uh, ecotourism, uh, carbon credits as green bonds, uh, lower carbon emission policies and so on. And also, uh, I think it's important to frame Green, green Grab as a, a sustainability, as a brand, uh, as a brand uh, because I think it's just a really uh, difficult concept to, to frame sustainability on those days. And I would just give an example what happened here in Brazil. Uh, we have this major... Um, mining disaster that it was in, that happened in 2019 related to the Valley Company. I don't know if you guys heard about it. It's one of the major disasters related to mining companies that happened on the modern history that ha actually happened really close to my, my home. And they the, the first thing that happened as they took the toxic mud and just started to create these bricks that it's completely completely toxic to rebuild the, the people's houses. And they just gain a sustainable international prize for that. And what we have seen is how the, the, the assets from Valley raising on the stock market after the disaster and when and with the process they are trying to uh, just rebuild the river and rebuild the river basins and so on and now they can see they can say they are sustainable they are supporting the communities to 
just face the problem they already created. Another example that I think it's really interesting is related to this major uh, park, uh, the, this national park that it's located on the Amazon and the state of Marañón. And it was a state that was created on the 80s by the state and it's supposed to be an integral, an integral uh, protection unit. And also this is kind of difficult to understand because in Brazil, the parks cannot, the, the, the park leg legislation was really framed by the, the national parks in US that it's like with pretty much with forests and no land. But here in Brazil, we have the nature was built, the Amazon was built by the people and the systems of conservations are really related to the traditional communities and how the traditional communities can reproduce nature itself on these places. So when we build an integral, integral protection unity that wants to expel people from this zone, is just creating uh, shifts of how the nature will reproduce itself on this place, for example. And here, we, what we see on the, and, and the yellow and orange uh, zones are already land that they stayed uh, except on the digital systems that it's now privatized. Pretty much of these uh, orange uh, areas are related uh, owned by soy farmers now and pension funds, especially from the US. So we have Brazil Agro, uh, Telarus, and I think TIA on this region as well, purchasing those lands. And the yellow ones, we, we pretty much have some national investors and also cattle farms that, that bought this, this land. And all these yellow houses is the numbers of communities that lives on the on the this national park. The south part, it's it has been already dispossessed. So pretty much of these houses that we see now, these communities, they don't exist anymore. And especially because uh, they're using different uh, political forces to expel these uh, traditional communities over well. Uh, over there, they the the companies, for example, Brazil Agro, uh, that it's a Brazilian and Argentina uh, company for commodity. They create some security sports inside the the park to make vigilance who is going in and going out the park, even though this is illegal. And also the environmental policy in Brazil that was supposed to look for environmental crimes are all also dispossessing uh, those communities. They created uh, these types of documents that has no legal point or, or, or legal uh, procedures to show the communities because most part of them cannot read to just uh, make something looks formal or looks uh, from the state saying that they cannot buy, uh, build new houses or if they, they cannot still live in there. And people just believe because they, don't, can, they cannot read the papers and just leave the park 
and most part of, of, of this process as well, the police just burned the houses so they cannot go back to the homes that they used to have before. Well, and facing all these immaterial narratives and how some actors are dealing with this um, green grab process, it's really interesting to see how this also attached by the actions that the state uh, are doing at the moment. For example, when we have the work, uh, the Workers' Party, as I said before, we have like this major, major advances of uh, social uh, political programs and also uh, redistribution programs as well. So I put just some of them to, to highlight that I think it's really interesting. And some of them was also actually related to, to the rights of traditional communities through land. For example, in 2008 and 2004, that we will have the first uh, normatives and laws related to Afro-descent rights and indigenous rights in Brazil. It was the moment that we were able to reduce greenhouses, gases, and being a little bit more supportive with the supranational agreements that Brazil was uh, signing at the moment. Uh, Brazil also uh, received uh, the United Nations Conference of Sustainable Development in 2012 in Brazil, showing some efforts to uh, go a little bit further on the climate change issues. But at the same time, we have some uh, contradictions. And I think one of them are the investments of biofuels uh, that we can talk a little bit further. But in the international sphere, we can see this as a, a climate change positive aspect. And also agroecology programs that were shut down for, I don't know, like 20 years that was receiving public funds to study, to, to even investments on traditional communities. We also had some social and food redistribution programs at national schools and also uh, related to small farmers. Uh, we have this major campaign in international narrative going really stronger to the Amazonia preservation. And also we have the decrease of land conflicts on the Pentai uh, governments. But at the same time, uh, all these uh, social and environmental narrative has to, to be paid in, in some sort of way. So at the same time that we see how Amazon was being reinforced in this discourse, in this discourse of like climate change and how we were trying to save Amazon, we were just destroying the Cerrado, for example. And because it's it was on the it was easier to to make infrastructures in the Cerrado because we also face some problems in about railroads and other types of infrastructures in Amazon. So it was easy to sacrifice Cerrado as well. And also Cerrado has 
uh, easier lands to technify or to make some shifts for commodity production, for example. We have a lot of flat and plateau areas that can be mechanized a little bit easier and so on. Uh, I already speak, uh, I spoke a lot about the flexibility of the forest code that happened in 2012. Uh, we just saw like this major, major campaigns of the national agribusiness uh, building this national uh, agribusiness elite. Actually, we had this national campaign going through the television that said that agro is pop, agro is tech, agro is everything creating this uh, ide ideology for the society that the agribusiness was the major important thing to the Brazilian economy. And that was why Brazil has to make some efforts to increase the commodity exportation, for example, how soy and cattle was important to expand the, the Brazilian economy and so on, how the agribusiness was important to frame Brazil in an international sphere. And this also was the moment that we will see the agribusiness elite going uh, beyond national frontiers. So we will see that in the government of Lula, for example, we will create uh, with Mozambique the Pro Savana, actually importing all the massive destruction that we did in Cerrado. Actually, in Mozambique, they were, they were able to shut it down with local resistance, uh, this type of uh, project. But we also see that even though Pro Savana was not going uh, to be concluded, we see, for example, in the north of Mozambique, the destruction in the corridor of Nakala with the infrastructures and also private investments going to this uh, region in Mozambique. In Paraguay, we have a lot of Brazilian investments, especially on soy farming. Uh, we have this uh, term that we say Paraguayos. And in Colombia, we will see how the Brazilian agribusiness is related to Colombia lead as well. Uh, we will see how uh, major companies, for example, as Brazilian foods bought a lot of uh, cattle companies in US and a lot of land in US as well. And also bought some companies in UK, if I'm quite sure. And actually in Canada, we will see, for example, Biopharma, that it's uh, a company related to uh, fertilizers. is that correct? I think so. And also a lot of uh, sorts of inputs for the agribusiness that it's also located in, in developing countries. So we see how at the same time that we, we are facing to social advances and biodiversity programs, for example, in that happening in the, in the big type movement and the recognitions of traditional communities were face of the advancement of agro business and also mega projects in Brazil. And this elite that was created on the Lula government, it's also related with Dilma impeachment on 2018, because it was the same elite that was just creating this uh, excuse related to some credit funds from the agriculture that was shift to social program. And this was uh, some illegality on this uh, shifting of funds, of government funds. And 
for that she was uh, impeachment. And now in Bolsonaro government, we have 257 deputies and senators that are related like openly to the agribusiness. And this made the agribusiness the major force of the political change on the, on the Congress and the Senate chairs. Uh, I really enjoyed these maps because we will see two different uh, uh, spectrums, how to frame Brazil. And I, I took this from the same resource that it's map biomas. Uh, so for example, for the agribusiness uh, narratives, they say that Brazil is such a, a big uh, conservation uh, country because we still have 59% of the territory with forests, for example, and only 30% of the territory occupied by agriculture. So actually, we still have a lot of land that could be uh, shifted to, to agriculture and food production. But at the same time, we will see how the native uh, vegetation is just decreasing uh, through the years and how agriculture is keep rising and silviculture as well. Here in silviculture it's important to frame that it's pretty much eucalyptus that they are planting and it's not um, a tree that it's uh, original from Brazil. And we see that this discourse is also related to how the agribusiness has like this efficiency and technology and can bring progress to years that it's empty because mostly on the official discourse, they, they don't see the traditional territories as the land being occupied. For example, they see just its land to be more modernized or going to the stock market, for example. But at the same time, we see the same map related to the fire and deforestation in Brazil. And in the past two years, we will see just the this major rises of deforestation and fire, especially on Cerrado and Amazon. Uh, we have between 19 and 2020 to 20% of the rises of deforestation and fires. And this uh, makes that in 2012, we lost 11 million acres of uh, natural uh, original uh, vegetation in Brazil. And this, this uh, scenario are also related how Bolsonaro is framing his discourses to environmental issue and climate change issues, just denying uh, climate change, the forgiveness of fines, the decreasing of the environmental funds in uh, the public institutions. We will see, for example, IBAMA, that is an institute related to the unit conservations here in Brazil, just lost pretty much 80% of the fund. Uh, we have sometimes just, I don't know, 10 people at INCRA to work on the Amazon state, for example, that makes the work impossible to be uh, done on these areas, if, if we think. 
And here I just put uh, three parts of Bolsonaro discourses for you guys see what we are dealing right now. Some are before uh, he was elected, the first one, for example. So when he visited uh, Afro-descent community, he said that, uh, that the lightest Afro-descent that were there uh, aided seven Ahobas that was a measure to use to weight cattle. They don't do anything. I don't think it's even for a breeder anymore. And the government spends more than a billion with them. And a billion, it's just nothing related to the funds that are uh, going to the agribusiness, for example. This is a, a, another line that he say a little bit after he won the elections. You can be sure that if I get there on the, on the power, there won't be any money for NGOs. There won't be a centimeter demarcated for indigenous reserve or a quilombola. That means Afrodescent. Where is an indigenous land that is wealth? So they, they also understand how the, the, the indigenous lands are important and now also how they can speculate and sell the nature that it's related to the traditional uh, territory lands. The other one it's related uh, with the rises of the deforestation and fires in Amazon. That was, he said, uh, last year. The, he said, when the cattle declines for economic reasons, com com competitive etc., when the cattle is removed, as it was removed from larger reserves that was created in the region, ecological reserves, uh, the, as happened at the private reserve of natural heritage of Pantanal, which does happen in these places, taking out the cattle and fancy, grass grows a lot and accumulates a lot of uh, vegetable mass. When it creates fire, it's very intense fire. It's, it's a sentence that doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> like if we are preserving the nature, the nature will just catch a fire or something like that. And it's, it, this is really also was uh, kind of an answer about what happened in 2019 that we call the fire day that happened in 10 of August when the agribusiness, this was already proved that it happens in WhatsApp, uh, agribusiness groups, groups in Amazon and Pantanal and Cerrado. They, they articulate different spots to create fire. And what we see was like this major, major part of lands just on fire on the day, on the 10th of August into 15th, 18th of August of 2019. None of the people were arrested. None of the people received any sort of environmental fines. And it's also a, a, a way to also cheat on the environmental uh, laws as well, because once the, the land is burned and you just lost the, the forest and the natural vegetation that were there, you already have an excuse to make this land accessible for the, the stock market because it's not a conservation unit anymore. It doesn't have the biome itself anymore. So you just can't move to speculation and the land markets after that. 
Um, I'm finishing. I, I I don't know if I'm passing the time, so you can already uh, you can uh, show me a sign or something like that if I'm passing the time. And well, what we see it's a little bit uh, diff a difficult um, panorama to to create resistance from from the the social movements, but at the same time that we have some law changes, for example, the land digitalization changes and how the it's possible to self-declarate uh, titles for the agribusiness, it's also possible for the traditional communities. So now we, what we are trying to do is the same strategy that the agribusiness are doing, just declaring amounts and amounts of the land on the, on the digital systems that Brazil has, because you don't have to attach any sort of uh, land title at, uh, from the notaries on the system. You just say that the land is yours and pretty much have the GPS dots of the territory and you can just put and self-declarate uh, that you have this land. And it's pretty much a land rush on this system because once the first person it declarates uh, one territory, when a second person try to uh, like self-declare the same part of the land, the system just shut it down and does not allow the people to to make a, a, a declaration in the same land, creating overlap of the system. So what we are trying to do is just declarate this traditional communities as much as we can to stop that the agribusiness can declarate uh, this land after that. And also I think one of the, the things that it's quite interesting to see uh, in some of the resistance they are not uh, receiving any sort of public money for any sorts of small farmers program agroecology because they think at the same time that they stayed uh, it recognizes them also they always have, something back on the flip of the coin that they have to sell themselves or they have to exchange for something. So they does not want to exchange any favor with the state anymore. So they are trying to, going back to how the traditional movements were organized on the eighties, on the seventies without the help of the state and try to recreate these strategies uh, one of them are really interesting that happened on the pandemic times, for example, just blocking the territories and don't allow no one to go there. Because with the Bolsonaro government, in the beginning of the pandemic, what we saw was also this type of uh, uh, geno uh, genocide happening in the traditional communities because they were going to the traditional com communities that had no access to hospitals, or state structures and just bringing the COVID for the communities that were isolated and people was just starting to die on the community. So once they recognize that as like this um, virus strategy to decrease and create this genocide on the traditional communities, they start to block the communities and create, for example, community policies 
to protect the territories. We also uh, have seen in Pantanal the rises of network related to Criollo seeds and uh, strategies to reforestate some of the, year, the, the areas that are burnt, especially on the past two years. And also different types of social movements that it's organized now in Brazil. For example, Teia dos Povos, Agrofogo, Land Pastoral Commission, Landless Movements, Core Workers Unions, the National uh, Indigenous People Association, the National Confederation of the Afro Descents, that in Brazil we call Colombolas. And one strategy that was really, really important for the landless movements was the donation of food uh, that happened on the pandemic time because of, of this, this part of the, the communities that has more security of the land, they are keep able to produce food even though they don't have uh, access to the public funds. And it was really interesting to see how uh, they are trying to connect a little bit more with the social movements on the cities as well. And one of the strategies that we are all trying to do is dispute the narratives and the social media. So, uh, for example, the indigenous people has this international massive campaign. Uh, we had also a campaign with the TIA in Harvard about stop land grabbing in Brazil. That was really interesting because TIA actually dropped the, uh, the funds on the lands that were in Cerrado in Brazil. But actually, they moved to another part of Brazil, but I won't say that, that at the moment, just to keep a little bit happier story. And I don't know, I think pretty much that's it. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for that talk, Deborah. Um, as Marcus says, it was really excellent and informative and disturbing as well. Um, and very, you managed to distill what, as you would say, is a very complex process, I think, into like a very clear presentation. So thank you for that too, and, and making it quite accessible for us. Um, we can open up to questions now. I have a couple, but see if anyone else has any first. Um, okay, I, I'm happy to kick it off. So I was really interested in this question of legalizing land and, and one of the resistance strategies you were speaking about was self-declaring. And I guess I was wondering, are there any strategies to make land perhaps not available to legalize, um, to like not allow it to enter the formal market? Because I wonder if through the formalization process and self-declaring that could also, you know, like a, make it a, a a legal property that could then be commodified. Like, I'm just wondering if there are, if there are tensions around that. Um, I know there's other units of like land protection in Brazil as well. And so if you could maybe say a little bit more about that, I'm really curious about that kind of contradiction that you mentioned. I think maybe you're frozen. Did you catch that? I think you froze. Did you catch my question? 
Yeah, kind of, I lost, I lost uh, part of the process <laughs> for your question, but I understand that it's how to legalize land, but not making land as a commodity, for example, how we have, I don't know, legal strategies to land protection or traditional lands, something like that. Yeah, and I know like in some urban, like in some cities, some, some movements try and actually hold up the legalization process so that people can stay on that land before it becomes a, like um, a property commodity, like potential for commodification. Is it, so I'm just wondering, like, can you speak a little bit more about that contradiction? Because you mentioned it as a contradiction. Um, so I'm just curious what some of the challenges with self-declaring are. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you can interrupt me because I, I lost parts of uh, your question because my internet just got unstable right now. Do you guys can hear me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, because, okay. Um, well, I think one of the, the strategies is um, we have three different types of uh, uh, collective lands that you can legalize now in Brazil, that it's uh, Afro-descent uh, territory, indigenous territory, and uh, collective territory. If you have uh, a traditional uh, identity as a fisherman, as cattle, small farmers, because we have some traditional ways to, to create cattle, or, well, I would say the Brazilian words, because some of them uh, does not have translation, but some of the identities, for example, quebradoras de coco do babassu, coletadoras de sempre vivas, vazanteiros, brejeiros, that it's like this sort of multiple identities that it's already recognized by the constitution and also about on the OIT as well, on the article 169. So they can apply for collective territories and the legal, the the titling of these territories. And once it's collective, you cannot sell it. But the problem that, so sometimes it took, uh, I don't know, 10 to 20 years to recognize this sort of land. That it's why most of the, the some traditional communities just prefer to legalized by small uh, land properties, individualized because sometimes it's easier to be recognized. And also because the banks does sometimes does not recognize the, the traditional collective uh, land titling for credit uh, funds on the agriculture or agroecology or whatever they want to, because they cannot uh, mortgage the land because the land is collective. So they, they try, it's sometimes it's hard to, to, to deal with this contradiction, but it's still, I think the best option if for the traditional communities and the small farmers are going to recognition of traditional territories just because it, it's harder to the stock market to uh, make strategies to dispossess this sort of land. So even though it's harder, and now in the Bolsonaro, even though with Bolsonaro, we were able to recognize seven uh, traditional territories in Piauí, 
It was uh, a work that we did with several universities with the uh, social justice network. And it was quite interesting because in five years of struggle and researching and mapping and putting this uh, self-declaration maps and tiring of the traditional communities on the system, we were able to recognize those lands. It was a really interesting process to see. And I, I think it's uh, some spotlight at, at the end that it's it moves on other communities to see that it's also possible to to think about those strategy even though it's it's harder it's possible and i i think this goes to a path to understand land uh, not as a commodity for example the other question that you did i just lost it because my internet wasn't stable so if you prefer to write on the chat or something I think it would be a little bit easier to, to understand. You answered my question. That was great. Thank you. I wasn't aware that the self-declaration could also be for collective kind of traditional territories as well. So yeah, that's 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 great. Thank you. Um, are there any questions? Anyone else? I think I have a question uh, for <laughs> Deborah. Deborah, thank you so much for this presentation. It was great and informative. I just have um, some uh, curiosity. So you talk about the the forest code of 2012 that it makes easier for self-declaring the land. And I'm just wondering if you have seen and the data you are analyzing, um, if the process of uh, getting uh, the finite typos for the land has been expedited during Bolsonaro's government to favor uh, this agribusiness elite? Do you see uh, some changes in the process of, because one of the problems is uh, once you self-declare, uh, the process of getting the final title takes decades in general in Brazil, right? That's, that's one of the problems. So it's not only self-declaring, self but after you self-declare, uh, you have to wait years and years, and that's the problem with many, many communities. But I'm just wondering if, uh, uh, this gap in has been changed uh, during the last year with Bolsonaro. And the other question I have uh, is about, um, sorry, there was this paper uh, with Rayoni uh, um, about the uh, agribusiness and, and how soy, um, that almost 50% of the soy goes to the European Union and how in by defect European Union is, 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 is in part responsible of the fires and deforestation in Brazil. And I'm just wondering if you, in, the, in your work on uh, land digitalization also have done something related to the kind of pension funds uh, or, or uh, other kind of capitals involved in uh, this uh, sort of uh, deforestation process to access the land. congelada. Do, uh, do you guys hear me? Because it's just frozen sometimes and I'm just lost in the connection. Okay. 
Yeah, I lost some. Thank you very much for your questions, Diana. I also missed some of the parts because of the internet. So uh, you can just intervene if I'm not going to the path that you uh, you ask it for. Uh, about the the land digitalization and the time that it's related to the, the land titling process for the agribusiness, it shifted a lot. What we saw, for example, in Maranhão was like most part of the titles were issued in 15 days. Once they are uh, putting on, on the system, I also saw one land title that was issued in three days on Minas Gerais. So I think, I think it's really important to make this process a less uh, bureaucratic and faster because it's, it's impossible to, to think how to, to frame and organize the land structure if things take 10 years to be organized or systematized. But at the same time, what we see is for the agribusiness, sometimes it takes 15 days. For the co traditional community, it takes five years. So it's impossible. And I saw some uh, of the quantitative data for the, the environmental certificate registries. And what we see is that 87% of the registries are for uh, private land titles and only, uh, I think it's like 2% uh, traditional territories and the rest is public lands and uh, small farmers uh, settlements. So it's really, really hard to, to recognize traditional lands on, on the system, even though it's it's something that should be easier for everybody. And for can you just uh, repeat the the question about the Hajan studies from Minas Gerais University because I couldn't uh, hear your question. No, my question was more like, uh, well, they tried to trace uh, all the agribusiness related with beef and soy, mm -hmm. uh, with deforestation and. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious with the data you have with Dataluta uh, and um, sector, if it's possible to trace uh, the sort of ancient funds and uh, other kind of companies that are behind uh, this kind of uh, land deals. Yeah, yeah, because Hajjama, it's more like a quantitative uh, study using uh land images and related to deforestation. It was like uh, analyzing, analyzing the differences and shifts of the legislation in Bolsonaro government that it's really, really a huge thing. And in the Hajami study, he also uh, seeing how the, the lands that was uh, registered on the, on the environmental systems were more deforestated than the ones that are not on the system that it's also quite interesting as well. But for understanding how the pension funds and companies are related to, to those processes, it's, I think we cannot, I don't know, I cannot say that some methodology it's quite, I don't know, 
structure has some structure already to see all this this sort of movements. What we are doing now it's mixing uh, newspapers and what happens on the media and also uh, talking directly with the social movements and going like case by case actually. And the other thing that we are trying to do now, it's uh, going through some, uh, for example, the, the federal, how, this, how is this in English? The, for taxes, like the, the system for, for taxing companies, they have to put there all the, the, uh, the land purchase that they have. And also sometimes for US, they have to make this declaration of properties of the companies. So what we do, uh, it's taking these reports and see where are the lands and what is the illegalities that these companies has, but still like case by case, like going to one company to another company and just studying one by one. Uh, and the other one that it, the land metric it's trying to do right now, it's just uh, amplifying the, the data they are uh, putting on the system related to the land conflict as well. Because sometimes it's, it also shifts really quickly. So sometimes if, if you are looking, for example, for a land in, in the Cerrado, you will see that it's from BlackRock and Two years after that will be from, I don't know, TIA, for example. So it's, sometimes it's really difficult to track um, who is, his lands are as well, because we don't have access to the, the land transactions uh, papers in Brazil, even because it's not digitalized uh, now. So it's it's a, a different mix of methodologies, I think, to, to go into to these informations. Yeah. Right. We have a couple of questions and comments in the chat. So I'll just read one. The first one from Sophie. Um, is there any cost associated to the self-declaration process that makes it inaccessible to those who maybe can't afford it? Yes. So the cost, is there a cost to self-declaration? You don't have a cost to put on the system, but you have a cost to um, delimitate the area that you need, because this is a sort of an expensive service here in Brazil that probably will take, I don't know, like five months of work of the small farmers to pay. Uh, we, we had, we have, dot have, a program uh, that's supposed to uh, delimitate the lands of uh, the small farmers and put on the system for free. But also what we saw is this type of program, it's uh, prioritizing large farmers and medium farmers as well. But as a, a type of resistance, what we do as a geographers, engineers is going into the communities to do this type of work. So usually when I go to field work, this is the type of uh, work that I also do uh, for the communities. 
So at the same time that I don't know, I'm doing a report or research. Sometimes I do like workshops about how the system works, or sometimes I do also uh, the limitations with GPS or drones to the traditional communities because we know they cannot afford it or they cannot wait for the government to go there and make this uh, sort of uh, action for them. So, yeah. We have a comment from Peter Graham, um, an excellent but very disturbing presentation, thank you. It seems to me the objectivist economic ontology forming the foundations of Western cultural tools systematically normalizes the destruction of our habitat. While the ultra-rich seem to be making plans to leave the nest, I suspect that strategy is equally delusional. Perhaps we should nominate Western knowledge for a Darwin Award. I don't know if Peter would like to follow up on that. Are there any other questions out there? Oh, Peter, Peter's here. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I see this over and over again, you know, where uh, we do these uh, almost suicide in a routine way, you know, we're engaged in these almost suicidal behaviors that are on the surface, you know, they seem so obviously insane, you know, but, and yet they're, they're normalized with this, you know, economic logic, if you can call it that. There's no question. I'm just just a just an observation. I mean, it it gets uh, very depressing. I don't know, Deborah, if you want to follow up on that. Um, to me, one of the interesting things about Brazil is that they do have these different kinds of land protections, right? So collectivist kind of ownership over land, which is maybe a little bit different than the capitalist ideology of private property. But I don't know. Um, I don't know very much about that. Deborah, do you want to follow up on that? I miss it again, but I, I mean, I know that the the contest is not really uh, positive, but I know I don't know. I, I I feel like more like a Pollyanna way of frame the world, especially I don't know because I live in Brazil. We we I I, I already born fucked up on the system because Brazil has been fucked up since I don't know five hundred years ago. So I mean. We don't have uh, anything left to, I don't know, struggle and have hope in ourselves, I think. Uh, and I don't know, even with the, and even with all this um, ultra conservative government that we have right now, I think uh, we saw that some of the social movements was getting stronger and going back to the, the basis uh, again. For example, uh, the landless movement on the pink tide just was making a lot of deals and going inside the, the state structure and losing the idealist way to go to the communities, to occupy lands. And it's something that we are like facing right now and seeing the landless movements going back to this sort of strategy, like occupying lands and talking to the, the communities. For example, we have this return of the territories of the indigenous people just claiming a lot of stuff. Last week, we saw that this um, 
it, it was like a, this escape of the Topinambas that was on the on Holland museums or something like that was just brought back to the Tupinambas after, I don't know, 150 years. So we see some little steps changing. I know, I know that it's not sufficient to change the system because I will be really naive and a bad researcher if I say that, but I don't know, we just, I don't know, have to keep living and, and removing and, and trying because sometimes I, I think it's just a easy way as well to see that the capitalism is not ending. And for example, if we go to the, the climate change narratives, we, we see the end of the earth, but we don't see the end of the capitalism. And this is a quite of an irony relation of the way that we see ourselves as a human nature, for example, or even we don't see ourselves as a nature because we, I mean, we just see how nature is just separate of our society in those days. So I think it's, we have some interesting move and we are seeing how the indigenous people are reflecting and changing the universities as well and the way of the society thinks some sort of things so I don't know, I feel a little bit hopeful <laughs> for the next decades, if I'm alive, of course. We have a question from Tony Thornton. Thank you, Dr. Lima. This was difficult and eye-opening. Feeling for Brazilian people, particularly, particularly those who are indigenous. And indeed, I'm concerned for all of humanity. I especially appreciated this discussion of indigenous and social justice resistance. What strategies would you say have been most successful with respect to resistance? Thank you very much for your question. Do you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. I think um, the most important strategies, I think it's land collective delimitations of campaigns are, I think it's has been more effective than some of the national strategies on this moment. So for example, I think now the indigenous movement, it's more not organized, but I think it's collecting more results of the struggle right now, especially because they are, they have this, also this appeal on the international audience as exotic, as like really traditional people from Amazon and so on. So I think it's easier to connect with uh, international claims and uh, nature and climate change and sustainability. So I think the indigenous movements are using this kind of media forces pretty well now in Brazil, just like collecting money to creating network and changing knowledges between communities, for example, uh, to uh, don't uh, make change laws for indigenous territory, for 
foreign purchase of land in Brazil, for example, that they had this massive campaign last year and also this year related to some uh, changes of nomads at Bolsonaro government that did not happen because of the resistance of the indigenous people. So I think they have some really interesting uh, strategies. You can follow them on Instagram, <laughs> on YouTube and so on. And I think we have to face that social media is part of most people's lives and it has also like a positive impact in, in some people, for example. So I think this brought for a bigger audience the struggles of indigenous people in Brazil, for example. I think that's a good note to end on strategies of indigenous resistance. Um, so thank you everyone for being here. We've had a number of people have to trickle out because of I'm sure, class commitments and meeting commitments. Um, so thank you for everyone who was able to come throughout the duration and for those of you who are still here. Um, and we hope to see you in a couple of weeks at our next SNID, which is on um, a panel on LGBTQI plus two rights in Namibia. So thank you, Dr. Lima so much for being here with us from Brazil. Thank you very much. Sorry for my bad English. <laughs> that was phenomenal. No. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.